If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out now to our children's church. The rest of us are turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. While you're turning there, I want to let you know kind of the schedule for Sunday mornings during the month of December. It's always a special time for our church, but always a time that causes pastors a little bit of consternation because there's only so many Christmas passages and everybody expects you to have a brand new Christmas series. So after a lot of thought and prayer, um, last Christmas, or last December, I led us through uh, the Matthew's account of the advent of Christ, Matthew chapter 1, 2, and 3. There are a lot of details in my studies that I left out specifically regarding the certain characters that Matthew chooses to focus on. And so what we're going to do in the next four weeks in the month of December is we're going to look at the characters that Matthew focuses on. We're going to look at Mary and Joseph and their specific role that they play in the advent of Christ. We're going to look at the wise men. Got a lot of questions last year, a lot of interesting comments in my message on the passage about the wise men. So we're going to go in depth on the wise men and what we do know and the role that they played in the advent of Christ, specifically following the advent in their worship. And then we're going to look specifically at Herod and how God used him and that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And Psalm chapter 2 reminds us that God orchestrates every event for his purposes. We're going to look at Herod and how God uses even unsaved people for his purposes And then I'm going to ask you to make the Sunday morning of Christmas a special focus as we have a very unique opportunity to gather as God's people on Christmas morning. We're not going to be having our Sunday school hour that Sunday, so at 1030 we're going to gather here on Christmas morning to sing Christmas carols. Then I'm going to bring a very specific message on the theological theological implications of the incarnation of Christ himself truly God, truly man, the babe planted in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and to look at that event and the character of Jesus Christ in the Advent. And so I would, it's a message that I'm greatly looking forward to preaching. It's going to be very doctrinally focused on the importance of the humanity and the personhood of the second member of the Trinity. And so I'd I'd encourage you to make that, I know in in Christmas a lot of people are like, Christmas, go to church. I would encourage you to make that a special special event with your family as we gather at 1030 Christmas morning to focus on the theological implications and the importance of of the person of Jesus Christ in his advent. So anyway, that's kind of where we're going and excited to be able to bring that to you. Studying and preaching is my greatest joy and uh, excited to be able to, to have that as my life's calling for you here at Community. I tell you what, let's pray and let's refocus our hearts and ask for God's blessing and then we'll dive into the sermon this morning. God, we come before you in worship as the triune God, in this special time to look into your word. We pray for those in our church family who are suffering this morning, not able to be with us, but joining us in the live stream. We pray specifically for the Pelletiers. As they've been struggling with this diagnosis, with Bradley's diagnosis of leukemia, as he is in Illinois right now, beginning treatments, You'd comfort their hearts, that you would give them a special comfort knowing that we are with them in spirit and our hearts and our prayers are with them. 
I pray you would be a special comfort to Brad during this time as he is beginning treatments that you, he would have a special knowledge and sense of your presence. Pray for all of those in our congregation who are suffering. If we were to begin to go through the list, we'd be here for, for hours as we would talk through and pray through the many in our congregation who are going through such difficult times. We thank you for healing Tammy, Hubley's family, that miracle there. We pray that as we focus in on your word this morning, that you would use the truth from it to stir our hearts in a great way. In your name we pray. Amen. What is in your life right now that you put value in? My wife is always, I believe, the winner of the Best Wife of the Year Award. But this year, I think it's pretty obvious that she wins it to everyone because for my birthday, she found a copy of Pilgrim's Progress from 1850 in pristine condition and got it for me for my birthday. For those of you who have been here any length of time, you know that Pilgrim's Progress is my favorite book. And I believe, other than the Bible, the, the most read book should be in your library. We have copies of it in our, uh, in our resource center. We even have Pilgrim's Progress for children. Anyway, she got me this beautiful leather-bound copy from the, from the 1850s, and it sits in my office in a very special place. I won't actually read from that copy because I want to preserve it, but it has great value to me. And to you, you might say, that's great, but if somebody gave me that, I'd probably turn around and sell it on eBay because it holds no value for you, but for me, it holds immense value. In fact, if you were to go in my office, you would see all sorts of trinkets on my office shelves from all over the world, some of them that cost almost nothing, but to me are very valuable. And no doubt, you have the same kinds of unique things in your home. Maybe it's a certain set of dishes or a certain priceless heirloom that you put value in, but someone who doesn't know the background, doesn't know the story, perhaps doesn't have the emotions tied into it, wouldn't hold the same value. What we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is a series of value statements. That if you were to go in my office and you were to look at that book, you were to say, it's just an old book. But then if I were to explain to you the backstory and explain to you the sentimental value, then maybe you would see the value of it. And here what, what Solomon does in chapter 7 is he gives you a list of statements and says, if you have a heavenly perspective of wisdom, you will value these things. You see, if you look through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has built his case that this world is full. In fact, everything under the sun, everything in this world is but a breath. It's, it's, it's vanity. Not, not sinful, not wrong, definitely not pointless, but futile in the sense that it's here and it's gone. It's just a havel, it's just a breath. And so you may be tempted to ask, is there anything of value that I can do on this earth? Should I just waste my life because it's just a breath? And maybe you've gone down the road of trying to satisfy yourself with all of these things and found that nothing 
satisfies. And so we ask the question, what good is there for the child of God on this earth? And that's the answer that's given to us in chapter 7. In fact, if you look back at chapter 6, I believe there are a lot of different ways you can take chapter 7. I read, I believe, seven different commentators on this passage, and I think there were five different approaches to this chapter. So there are many different ways you can approach this. In in reading through this, I think that he's actually answering a question that he stirs in the heart of the reader in chapter 6 and verse 12, if you want to look there with me. He says, Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? What is good for man? What is wise for you to be involved in? In the few days of your vain life in which it passes like a shadow. I originally intended to stop midway through this chapter, but reading through, I think it's best treated as a whole. As we once again take kind of a flyover, we'll read all the way through it, then I'll reference certain verses, not rereading it all the way again. But I want you to look and see what what the author puts value in here, what Solomon puts value. So let's look here at chapter 7. We'll read all the way through uh, verses 1, all the way down through verse 29. So let's look together. Solomon says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death and the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. That's, uh, mirth is like foolish partying. Okay? It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the last laughter of the fools. This also is, well, it's a breath, it's vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Talk about the two extremes of pharisaical piousness and wickedness. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why would you destroy yourself? Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold... Not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise. More than ten rulers who were in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows the many times you have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. 
that which has been far off and deep, very deep. Who can find out, find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. A woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He's talking about wisdom. That if you live your life in wisdom, you're going to value certain things in your life. He's answering the question, what good is it? How can I live my life well in in a vain world in these passing few days? The answer is this, live in wisdom. If you'd like a theme for the passage, I've written it as the following. Living in wisdom gives purpose to your life under the sun. Living in wisdom gives purpose to your life under the sun. But living in wisdom, what does it look like? Where do you look to find wisdom? Friend, living in wisdom is living according to the word of God. It's understanding life from God's perspective. That's what wisdom is. It's looking at life from God's perspective. Valuing what God values. And so chapter 7 gives us the values of a wise person. We're going to do a brief flyover. I'm going to give them to you in rapid succession. We're going to pause on just a couple of them. But we're going to look through and see in this passage what wisdom values. If you were to live as a wise person, you would value these things. If you were to be me, you'd walk into my office and you would see value in these trinkets. If I were to to be you and walk in your house, I would see value in certain things. And so a wise person in chapter 7 values these statements. Let's see what they are. Number one, wisdom values a good testimony. Wisdom values a good testimony. Well, I, I don't care what people think about me. Well, A good name, verse 1, is to be treasured. It doesn't mean that you live in the fear of man. It means that a good testimony should be valued. Having a good testimony should be valued above having wealth, having nice things. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor rather than silver or gold. It's referring to someone who has a testimony of faithfulness and godliness. It's not he who dies with the most toys wins. It's being faithful to the end, a good name, a godly testimony, friends. Takes a lifetime to achieve and takes minutes to destroy. The way a person ends their life is of far more value than the way they start their life. When I was a youth pastor... The Lord made it obvious that he was moving us on from that ministry, and I had one of the hardest things that that a pastor ever has to do, and the day that any pastor dreads, and that is to tell your youth group or your congregation that God's moving you on. The Lord had made that clear to us because of another ministry opportunity that had been made available that we had been praying about. Because we had been ministering and investing in in this 
the, the, this youth group that we were pouring into, we were seeing fruit, God was blessing. And the, the senior pastor who I was uh, working with at the time made a statement. He said, Joe, in these last few months of ministry, you're going to be tempted to check your heart out and move on in your spirit to where you're going rather than staying where you are. And then he made a statement I'll never forget. He said, just remember, people don't remember how you come, but they will always remember how you leave. There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. I've had the opportunity in leadership in different ministries to be able to share that with those who were leaving ministry, about to make an announcement or leaving ministry. And it's so true, isn't it? You don't remember how people come, but honestly, you remember how they leave. And a good testimony should be treasured, a good name valued, expanding your ministry. A good name should be valued not because a good testimony makes you look good in front of others, but because it gives you a platform of ministry to share the gospel. That when you have the opportunity to share your faith, the person says, that makes sense because I know their lifestyle. It makes sense that they would be a worshiper of God. Values a good testimony and a good name in verse 1 and honest business dealings in verse 7. Very simple. Oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Being honest in your business dealings is much more valuable than getting ahead or making an extra buck. Because truth always wins. A wise person values honesty in business dealings. Bribery corrupts the heart. For those who are wise, taking advantage of the weak and the poor drives them crazy when they look around and they see it. A wise person fights for the weak. They fight for the downcast. There'll be no tolerance for oppression and manipulation. Recognizing that operating a business in an unethical way corrupts the heart. Friend, listen to me carefully. In your everyday job, Live in truth and integrity. Work according to biblical, a biblical perspective. Honest business dealings should be valued because they reflect God's character of truth. They reflect a God of decency, of order, a God who is truthful and cares about the weak. Another simple reason William wisdom values a good testimony is because of fiscal prudence. Look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun, that wisdom should be valued as if you are receiving a great inheritance, but it's also valued with an inheritance. Most inheritances are wasted and gone within a few short months. Wisdom values hard work. Often people waste what they're given more than what they work for. Fiscal prudence should be valued because everything you have belongs to the Lord and you're simply a steward of it. Again, just going in rapid fire succession here as Solomon just lists these different wisdom values. Wisdom should also be valued because verses 12 and verse 19 show us that wisdom gives you protection. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Growing up, I heard over and over again, if you're going to be dumb, you've got to be tough, right? Because wisdom offers you protection. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 6. Do not forsake wisdom. She will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Learn from everybody else's mistakes. Because wisdom will preserve your life. 
Much like exercising develops the muscles and the ligaments around a joint to make them strong and to protect them. And if you don't exercise, your muscles weaken and so you're much more prone to injury. So exercising biblical wisdom strengthens you and protects you from damage. Learn from others' mistakes, as we said, rather than your own. Proverbs 22 and verse 3, the prudent sees danger and avoids it, hides himself. The simple go on, the foolish, and they suffer. Wisdom sees value in a good testimony. Secondly, wisdom sees value in trials. Wisdom sees value in trials. Verse 2 is quoted often. A wise man's, excuse me, verse 2 in chapter 7, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Often quoted at funerals because wisdom sees value in funerals. Parents, don't hide your children from funerals. Are you being morbid, Pastor? No, I'm not being morbid. There's something that brings reality into a child's life. To go into a funeral, to go into the house of mourning, to see people crying. Is it, does it raise questions in your home that are hard? Yes, but they're questions that need to be answered, that the Bible answers. Questions about the brevity of life. Questions about what holds real value. Go to funerals. It reminds you of these things. Not only funerals, but sorrow. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Let me read that to you in the NLT. Sorrow is made better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. I think that's a really good translation. Has a refining influence on us. Friends, there are a lot of things about life that are joyful, but there's a lot, there's also a lot of things about life that are very sad and that are sorrowful. And pretending like life isn't hard does no good. When we're struck with the sorrows in this life, we're reminded that this life, this world is broken and there are sorrows in this life, but there's a life coming, there's a world coming that's perfect. It reminds us of the insufficiencies of the things of this world to satisfy us. It makes us long for heaven. Every time we're disappointed, every time we're let down, every time we're sinned against, every time we're a recipient of pain just because of the brokenness of this world, we are reminded that this world has problems. Makes us long for heaven. Makes us long for the next. You see, sorrow holds value And helping give you the proper perspective and letting go of the things of this world and holding tight to the things of heaven. We have a dear friend who's just been going through a a very difficult time. Her name's Natalie. And Natalie, just a few short weeks ago, lost her husband very unexpectedly in a health event. Three small children one of my wife's best friends, and she's been writing, Natalie's been writing about what God's been doing in her heart during this 
this tragedy. I don't know how else to say it. It's just a deep grief, sorrow, tragedy. I asked her permission to share some of these with you. I'd like you to listen as she writes in her own words. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 3. Here's what the verse says. Sorrow is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. Listen to these words. Jagged realness is uncomfortable. And some people might want me to get to the part about hope and how I'm rejoicing that he's in heaven. Trust me, I'd like to rush past the heaviness of these early stages of grief. I want to get to where we can feel some emotion that isn't colored by sadness again. But these raw parts are sacred. And as much a part of the Christian's grief experience as the hope is. My joy for him doesn't ease my devastation for us right now. The kids lost the most involved, present, loving dad. I lost the most patient, thoughtful, steady husband, teammate, and best friend. God didn't create us for death and separation. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Jesus agrees. Sometimes when I fix my heart on the thought of heaven, my suffering feels light and short, like everything will be made new soon. And it really won't be long before I'm reunited with him again. Other times I remember that in earthly years I'm not all that old and have three young kids depending on me for everything. And it feels long and huge and heavy again. So each day we crawl through the gauntlet of big and small hard things. Sometimes it continues well into the night, then the next day we do it again. Try not to look past the current hard moment to the next one until its turn comes. So as far as glimpses of light go, I've gained a longing for Jesus to come back. Quickly, please, Lord. When I thought we had lots of life together ahead, I truly loved the life we had. It was easy for that to be a trite thing that I said, but my heart only half wanted it. Now it's genuine constant begging. Now eternity is vivid and my heart is more aligned with what's real, what's important, and what's lasting. The kids and I have many joyful conversations about what it must be like for Michael to be whole and with Jesus. We imagine the most beautiful things about heaven. Friends, sorrow has a way of of changing your perspective, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us have thought, right? Let's be honest for a minute. We read Revelation in the end and we say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, even so quickly come. But can you just wait till I have kids? Or can you just wait till I get married? Or you can, ju- can you just wait till I have grandkids? Or can you just wait till my kids are saved? Or can you just wait? Or can you just wait until something like that happens? And then all of a something, all of a sudden, you value eternity differently. And all of a sudden, you become, you ready for it? Wise rather than being foolish. 
You're struck with heaven's wisdom. Can I trust God to work good from my pain? Can I trust God to work wisdom in my sorrow? Friend, if God can take the most difficult suffering that anyone's ever been through in the Lord Jesus Christ, being flogged and crucified on a cross, and use that to accomplish the work of redemption. How much more can you trust Him to take the pain and sorrow that's in your life and turn it for good? The good of you looking more like Christ. Let me ask you a question. Does Natalie look more like Jesus now than she did before? And, and God's promise is that what's happening in her life will work out so that she will. That it works out for good. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus suffered everything so that you could be brought into a right relationship with him. That you were born with a problem. Your problem is your sin. And Christ paid the price for your sin by giving of his perfect self on the cross. So that if you trust in him, you can find forgiveness from sin and eternity with Christ. <laughs> Sorrow holds value in helping you let go of this life and long for the next. There's wisdom also, our wisdom also values patience. Patience. Patience in finishing well, verse 8. Any foolish person can begin something. It takes a wise person to see the value of finishing. Can I ask you a question? How many projects have you started around your house and not finished right now? <laughs> I have a couple. Look around my house and I go, oh, that wall needs to be patched. Yep. Oh, I've started that project and haven't gone around to finishing it yet. And Solomon says, there's wisdom in finishing well. Friends, finishing well reveals that your faith is real. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners won, but only one, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we do it an imperishable. I don't run aimlessly, 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 26. I don't box as one just beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Listen carefully. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. How many Christians have disqualified themselves in their final days? Friends, if you want a prayer to pray every day, pray this. God, help me finish well. Help me finish well. I started to pull up illustrations of Christians, famous Christians who didn't finish well, who brought shame on the name of Christ. And I got so depressed, I, I, I just quit out my browser. And I said, Lord, just help me finish well. May that be our prayer. Finish. Wisdom values finishing more than it does starting. Wisdom values patience in being slow to anger. Patience in projects and patience in the end to finishing well. It also uh, patience in your slow to anger because patience is more valuable than anger. 
A wise person recognizes that whether it's explosive anger or harbored anger, harbored bitterness, it affects more than just you. Out of love, a wise person develops patience in his or her life in order to bring biblical peace to relationships and to protect those around them. Friend, if you're known as an angry person, you should see yourself as a foolish person. Because wisdom values patience. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which none will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. No root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many are defiled. Wisdom values patience. Wisdom values truth. Look carefully at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. We're going to park here for just a brief moment because I think this is one that we all need. We all need all of these, but I think this is one that we may need a little bit more weight on to, to lean into. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of a wise man than to hear the song of fools. For as a crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of fools. Wisdom values rebuke from those who love them. I think we need to read that end of verse 6 again. Wisdom values rebuke from those who love them. Because it's better for a man, verse 5, to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. One of the hardest things in life is to accept constructive criticism from those around you. Our sinful flesh wants to respond to constructive criticism in two ways. Our sinful flesh, some of you, depends, really depends on the way you're wired, mostly. Some of us respond in the, these two different ways, depending on you know what time of the day it is or how much rest we've had or whatever. But but mainly they fall into two categories. The first one is to get defensive. Someone comes to you with a concern. Honey, did you know that when you... It's really hard to take from kids, isn't it? The hardest... I haven't had to navigate these roads, so I'm preparing myself, but the hardest transition... In parenting, I've been told, is when your kids transition to adulthood and you, they, they transition to being friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and then they point out something in your life, right? Our, our kids point out stuff in our life all the time, and it's, hard, it's really hard to take it from a five-year-old, right? Um, Dad, are you angry? No! You know? I'm not as bad as you say I am. Come on! I mean, you have the same issues. How dare you talk to me about that when you have this in your life? I mean, you're way worse off than I am. Defensive. No, that's not true. If it, it's not a blind spot, I'd be able to see it, right? I know we say that over and over again. Hopefully it'll become part of our vocabulary. We have blind spots in our life. Others point them out. Some of us get defensive. That's sin. Other, others of us, this one's a little more sneaky, sneaky sin turn to self-pity oh well if that's true I'm just the worst person ever I'm the most terrible person I can't believe you would say that about me and make me feel this way 
turn to self-pity. That's just pride, manipulation. I mean, all of us in our flesh and in our sin want to respond one of those two ways. If you don't know which one, just ask your spouse or ask your parent or ask your friend, and they'll tell you. This is how you respond. Wisdom values constructive feedback from others because that's the way that we grow. Without constructive feedback, you will become the worst version of yourself. That's very important to understand. Without people speaking truth into your life and providing constructive feedback, you will become the worst version of yourself. Because you'll think you're the greatest person in the whole world. And everybody else will know better. And so all of your flaws and your strengths that are also your weaknesses will get magnified. And all of your flaws will never be addressed. Proverbs 15, 31 and 32. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. If you're a kid here and you're not allowed to say the word stupid, I'm sorry. It's in the Bible. But just don't say it at home. Proverbs 13.18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Sometimes one of the most loving things anyone can do is to come along beside you and say, listen, there's this glaring thing in your life, and I know you don't see it because if you did, I, I know you want to do what's right, and I love you enough to point this out. Surrounding yourself with people who only agree with you and are afraid to tell you the truth is putting yourself in an echo chamber. You ever been around people who only agree with everything you say? Yes, yes, people. Man, that's great. Oh, yeah, that was the best. And, 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 and no, it wasn't. Oh, you're right, it wasn't. You know, and all, and all they do is just agree. It's an echo chamber all around you. One of the goals of the Christian life is to glorify God by helping others grow in their Christ likeness and to recognize that God has placed other people in your life to help you grow in your Christ likeness. We do this by encouraging our brothers and sisters, when we see them reflecting the character of God and leaning in and lovingly admonishing when they're in sin. There's a guy who writes for the website Desiring God that John Piper founded. He says the following, Hard words are instrumental, indispensable, and precious along the path to godliness. It's so good. Hard words are instrumental, indispensable, and precious along the path to godliness. Often, your greatest times of growth will come in the hardest times when you see the sin in your life. Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. That restoration includes speaking the truth, but in a spirit of gentleness. Verse 6 of Ecclesiastes 7 says that surrounding yourself with people who are afraid to speak into your life is like trying to build a fire with thorns. If you do that, these big thorns that were in the, in the Middle East, it catches fire quickly and it makes a lot of popping sounds and then it goes away quickly. Lots of sound, lots of, of light, but no heat and nothing long-lasting. 
2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another. Verses 21 and 22, we don't have time to look into it, but if you want to go look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 7 later, you'll see that wisdom also recognizes the differences between uh, those who are intending to tear you down and those who are, uh, who are offering you constructive criticism. There was a time in my ministry where I was receiving uh, a little bit of hate mail uh, for some very difficult decisions that needed to be made. And, uh, and I made it a point in my ministry that if an envelope, you, you can always tell an envelope that has hate mail. And if you never got hate mail, bless you. Um, but if you have, it's, it's so very obvious. Because it's not, a hand, it's not handwritten on the front. It has no return address and no name. And when you open up the letter, there's no name to it, right? Because people who write hate mail are cowards. They don't really care about you. They just want to make fun of you and somehow they get a, they get, you know, a rise out of it or something. But so I just made it a policy in my life that I don't read letters that don't have names in it. And if the, if the, um, envelope like looks like it's weird, hasn't happened, hasn't happened a long time. Okay. Uh, I just throw it away, right? Because it offers no value. And so one of the, one of the things that you can, one of the tools that you can use in your life if you're receiving feedback from people, is to never confuse a protest and a question, because they're different, and to recognize the value of those who love you and are providing constructive feedbacks. Anyway, verses 21 and 22 show you that. I said I wouldn't get into it, and I got into it. Okay, verse 10. It also, wisdom also values truth from others, but it also values truth about the past. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? Oh, the good old days. Right? Good old days weren't so good in the midst of them. People forget like all the, the bad things that were going on. And they remember like all the things that I loved. Right? Oh, you know, you watch an old western. Oh, the good old days. Duh. You know, walk around like Butch Cassidy or whatever. And you forget they didn't have running water. They don't have plumbing. They don't have medicine. And everything you eat, you either had to kill or harvest. Can you imagine if you had to do that today? Right? I mean, how many of you put off shopping for Thanksgiving lunch or dinner, whatever you call it, until like the two days before Thanksgiving? Right? And you walked into the grocery store and you could get whatever you wanted. And you think, oh, the good old days. No. Not the good old days. Wisdom recognizes the truth about the past, and the truth about the present. Friend, you are alive in South Bend, Indiana in 2022 because that's what God has defined for your life. Which means you need to live as a Christian today. You're alive at this place, at this time. God has chosen this for you. Don't miss today because you were longing for yesterday. The truth and honesty about the past. Also, no hypocrisy. Verses 15 through 18. We won't read that section again. But it can be really confusing until you realize that Solomon is making a contrast between the total fool and the pious Pharisee. He's saying, be truthful in your dealings. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be someone who pretends to be one thing but is actually the opposite. Hypocrite is a person who says one thing does something totally different wearing a mask in public. Are you different when people around than you are when it's just you and your family? 
the proverbial family who argues and yells at each other all the way to church, slams the door, walks in and says, Happy Lord's Day. Are you a hypocrite, friend? Integrity is making the right choice in the light and in the dark. Wisdom values being the same person when other people are around and when you're alone. Recognizing the importance of integrity. The importance of not being a hypocrite. Verse 20. Wisdom values truth in being honest about failure. Only a foolish person thinks he doesn't have problems. When was the last time you asked forgiveness for something? When you recognized when you sinned, and you went to that person and you said, that was wrong of me, I sinned, will you forgive me for that? When was the last time you said the two words, the hardest words in the English language, I'm wrong? You know, a lot of arguments happen around the Thanksgiving table. You get family from all over, arguments about politics or finances or whatever, When was the last time you got in an argument about something and in the middle of it you realized that you actually didn't have all the facts and you said the two words, I'm wrong. Why is that so hard for us? Because we don't want to admit that we actually have problems. But a wise person is able to step back and to say the other three hardest words in the English language, you are right. To admit that I have shortcomings. To admit that I have problems. Wisdom recognizes your shortcomings and your sinful actions. Be the first one to ask for forgiveness. Be quick to admit when you're wrong. Wisdom values truth. Wisdom values purity. Verses 25 to 29, these verses give us a picture of one who's acting in foolishness tries to draw others into snares and nets in order to destroy them. It's not about, you you look at verses 25 to 29 of chapter 7, it's not about men and women. It's about one drawing someone else into sin, and he's using the illustration of the temptress, the seductress, who is drawing the foolish man into sexual sin. It's reflected in Proverbs chapter 7. Out the window of my house, Solomon writes, I've looked through my lattice. I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night in darkness. Verse 21 of Proverbs 7, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. Verse 24, sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Why? For many a victim she's laid low. She's slain the mighty throng. Verse 27, listen carefully. Her house is the way to the grave going down to the chambers of death because wisdom values purity. Wisdom values holiness. The world will tell you that happiness is found in immorality and adultery. And the wise person recognizes how fake pornography is, how destructive immorality is. How when you let immorality and sexual impurity into your family, you will destroy families. 
that the wise value purity. And friends, as holiness and purity is scoffed and the morals of our culture deteriorate around us, biblical wisdom sees great value in biblical purity. Teenager, listen to me. The world is lying to you all around you. The world is obsessed with sexuality. And you think that after just stepping back and looking on, they would understand that none of it satisfies. Because the track leads from immorality to adultery to even, gross, even more gross forms of immorality to drugs and, and, and alcohol and addiction and suicide. And you think anyone stepping back would look on and go, man, it's obvious the path here. Everyone who goes down, it destroys their life. Adultery never satisfies. Immorality never satisfies. Pornography always destroys. And the world paints it as this picture that that brings happiness and satisfaction, and it's a lie. Wisdom, joy, values, purity, and holiness. We preach a whole message just on that. Lastly, wisdom values the source of wisdom. It values God as sovereign in verses 13 and 14. Referencing the fall in verse 13, who can make straight what has been made crooked? You're not going to fix this world. All attempts at social justice are doomed from the beginning. It does not mean that we don't live out our lives in truth in injustice, in righteousness, in purity, to love mercy. But if you dedicate your life to make this world a better place, you're dedicating yourself to failure. Because it's not going to happen. Because what has been made crooked at the fall cannot be made straight until Jesus comes back to fix it. So live your life in righteousness centered around the gospel. Verse 14 should be memorized and and treasured in your heart in the day of prosperity be joyful in the day of adversity consider why because God has made one as well as the other friend if you're here and you have a wrong theology that good things from come from God and bad things come from Satan you need to read that verse you need a bigger God you don't have to excuse God away all things come from him God has made one as well as the other I got a flat tire. Satan's attacking me. No, God allowed it, okay? God brought it into your life for some reason. God is totally and completely sovereign in all ways over all things at all times. 100% truth statement. God is in control. No exceptions. And if you have problems with that statement, you have problems with Scripture. We have a huge, all-sufficient, all-sovereign God. And all things God is working in your life so that you will be more like Him. That's the good. In the hard times in your life, ask, you can ask many questions. I would challenge you to ask these two. How is God revealing Himself to me through this? What am I seeing about God that had this not happened, I would not have seen it? How is is God showing up in a big way 
Well, guess what, guys? I got news for you. He was already there, right? He's not like, oh, no, I got to step in and help him. No, he's already there. You're just seeing it for the first time. So what is God revealing about himself through this trial? Secondly, what am I learning about myself through this trial? Whew. Some of it's really ugly, isn't it? Some of it. God, I see growth in my life. What am I learning about myself? What am I learning about God? The only way to make sense of this life of vanity is to recognize that God is working out his plan according to his wisdom. Remember, it's God's world. And you get the opportunity to play a small part as a supporting character in whatever role he has for you. So wherever you are right now, that's your role. That you play in God's world. In God's lifetime. I mean, God's story. In your lifetime. You play a little teeny tiny part. He's in total control of the good times and the bad. So lean on his wisdom. Lean on his wisdom. Wisdom values a source of wisdom. God is sovereign and God as the source. Verse 23, wisdom was far from me. I wanted to be wise. Where do I find it? Verse 24 of chapter 7. That which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it? Neville Perry and Mick Clark are miners in Australia. Spend their life looking for gold. A couple years ago, they ran into a gold nugget of a lifetime weighing three kilos I don't know how much that is in pounds because I'm an American, right? We have this snobbery that we don't know about centimeters or kilos. But it was worth $200,000. One nugget. They mined for years and years and years and years and years. And finally, one nugget. Look at this. Lifetime achievement. Aaron and Greg are known as the Boulder Boys because I guess all mining, good mining happens in Australia. They're mining for opals. They found a boulder worth $100,000, a giant opal. And their whole life's pursuit came to its apex. And you're like, whoa, look at this treasure. Friends, mining for wisdom is much like that in Scripture. You know, friends, I'm not trying to be unkind, but many of us have this idea that If I'm going to do my devotions, it shouldn't be work. I just sit down and I read. And if I actually have to like think about it and it takes too long, I get frustrated. You have your whole life to study one book. How well do you know it? Because wisdom comes from mining the depths of Scripture, from reading and thinking and meditating and maybe getting a good book that we have out on our resource center. There's a new one now, written by Joel Beakey, that'll take your whole family and its, and its family devotions through the book of Genesis. Incredible. There are books out there that will help you understand the deeper things from God. There are books out there that will help you know how to study the Bible. And then as you use those tools and you look into your scripture and, and you read and you think and you pray and you read some more and you think some more and you pray some more, It's called meditation. All of a sudden, you're going to understand characteristics about God and all that mining is going to pay off. 
as you look deeply into the words of Scripture. God is the source of wisdom. Friends, if you don't know your Bible, you will not be a wise person. Use effort as we mine the depths of Scripture. It's worth it. Far better than a gold nugget because that's gone and the money will be gone so quickly. But the wisdom that's gained from mining Scripture lasts for eternity. Reaping eternal dividends as you get to know the source of wisdom. In conclusion, I'd like to read Proverbs 4, 7, and 9. Listen to this. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. I just think that's so I mean, the Bible is so simple. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Well, have you asked him? I'm just searching for God's will. Well, have you been, have you been pouring yourself into Scripture, getting to know God's character? I'm struggling with sin. Well, have you been immersing yourself in Scripture? The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Go do it. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize wisdom highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Proverbs 4, eight. Proverbs 4, nine. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. So the beginning of wisdom is this. Go get it. Read your scripture. Mind the truths and the beauty of what God has given to us. And may God give us his values as we pull out the precious wisdom of Scripture. Father, thank you so much for the truth that you've reserved for us today. Give us grace and hope. Help us to love you more today than we did yesterday. Help us to love you more tomorrow than we did today. May through the wisdom of Scripture, may we value what you value. I'd also like to ask, Father, as we enter into the Advent season, as Christmas carols are being played all around our world, in this unique season where unsaved people are filling their hearts with true words from old carols, may you use that truth to pierce their heart May you use the truth of the Christmas carols that are being played in malls and stores and gas stations and homes all over this world to arise, arouse questions in the hearts of unbelievers that cannot be answered with this world. Would you use this truth to accomplish your gospel mission? In your holy and precious name we pray.